Oh, if you want to be like super serious for a second, I genuinely judge people on age more than anything else. <laughs> really? Yeah. But don't you hate it when people do that to you? <laughs> yeah, does it go both ways? Do you judge young people for being too young and stupid? No. Mm. Oh, you just judge old people. I ju- and you know what? I mostly judge old white people, if you want to be more specific about oh, it. Okay. I just assume that they're racist. <laughs> <laughs> Which makes them lesser. Well, you know who was an old white racist person? Who? It was Viggo Mortensen in uh, the Cream Book. I don't even remember his name. Oh, yeah, the lip. Tony. Tony Vallelonga. How can you forget a name like Tony? I'm an Italian boy in the Bronx. What's my name? I don't know. I guess it's fucking Tony. He just seemed like a character in Fallout New Vegas. I was like, what's the, what's the stereotype we can play up? Hey, I have an idea. Mob guy. <laughs> he's not a mob guy, though. He made it very clear. He's a, yeah. the, the movie told me he's a good man. <laughs> he works at the Copacabana. And then in the days, I go get the Capricol down in the deli. <laughs> God, it's like, Why are as we soon here? as the guy's name says Tony, I'm like, he's in The Sopranos. <laughs> <laughs> and then, spoiler, the real person was in The Sopranos. <laughs> Fucking crazy. Wait, really? Yes. Did you not watch after the credits? No. Did you? Or no, did you not watch? Well, I watched like it's the... It's weird to talk about the very end of the movie <laughs> before we even introduced the movie or anything, but like... I mean, I did, but maybe I just wasn't... Was there a man named Tony Soprano? No. To Tony Vallelonga. Oh. Was who, that... who, the, who the movie was based off of. Uh-huh. The real Tony was in The Sopranos. It said that at the end of the movie. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. I missed that part. Yeah, it, it gave like a, it gave like one of the docu like based on a real story yeah, slash documentary I, slideshows about I like the real that. people. I guess I just missed that little bit of text. Yeah. So he was a mobster. I don't know. <laughs> in the movie, okay, we're getting it. Why are we here, <laughs> Coral? Oh, uh, we are here. Well. <laughs> <laughs> We're here to talk about the best picture winner, which was Green Book. We committed ourselves before the best picture Oscar went out that we were going to watch whatever won, which was a bad idea because it wasn't really a good Oscar race in general. Yeah. But we got stuck with Green Book. So probably better or worse worst. than Black Panther. I'd uh, rather watch Black Panther. Yeah, that has good music. I feel like I would have struggled. I feel like it was the second worst option. <laughs> Why, Joey? Did what? you watch the Green Book? Fuck! <laughs> 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 what about Black Klansman? That would have been an interesting combo. Isn't that supposed to be funny? It's not really funny. <laughs> oh. It has a couple moments, but it's not very funny. It's not a feel-good movie. Well, I guess... All not like the, the way Green Book is. Green yeah. Book is a textbook feel-good movie. Well, we did we did watch the Oscars together, so mm-hmm. there were, there was a moment. Coral was hosting an Oscar party, mm-hmm. and Nick and I were both over there. We were minimally dressed up. We were eating pizza. Um, there, were other, there were other friends there, and yes. uh, it got to the end of the night, mm-hmm. and they were going to announce Best Picture. And we knew ahead of time that we said, hey, on the podcast, we're just going to do whoever wins Best Picture. No matter what. No matter what. So uh, as, as soon as it gets announced, Green Book, I, I don't know what exactly what Coral said, but she, <laughs> she confused multiple people in the room because I don't think you were reacting to the to the actual pick. You were reacting to to this right here, right yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember what I said. You knew that you had committed a heinous crime yeah. and you were about to pay. Yes. <laughs> what, what, is, what is this, Nick? What are we doing? What are, why, why are we here? Who are we? Well, I'm Nick Limone. 
and I'm here to talk about the Green Book. But joining me today, we have. I'm Coral. Were you also not sure if he's going to introduce you or if you? Yeah, do I don't like gotta it. Let it get... I don't like it when podcast people say the others' names because I like associating the voice with hmm. the name. I, I, like, I think oh, that's okay. good. the The only counter of there would be like a definitive host, maybe. I mean, this it floats around. Where it's just it's up in the air, man. Uh, no, like we don't have that. But I, I, I think you're right. I, I just wasn't sure. Mm-hmm. You know, we're five and we don't have the. I'm Joey, by the way. I hate movies. Yeah, you're the uh, you're the hater of movies. The, the the podcast that you're listening. It's called it's called a Joey hates movies. And so. Joey has seen at this point what six movies? Seven. This is number five. <laughs> this is number five. Joey's seen five movies, and this is the fifth one. This is the most. This is officially the most movies I've seen in a calendar year. Um, in, I want to say, six or seven years. Oh, man, that's wild. What a, what an eclectic selection, too. Like, it's yeah. all over the map. It's all over the place. <laughs> so, Green Book. So, Green Book. We're here to talk about Green Book, and thank you. Thank you for listening, everybody. Thank you for going on this journey with us. Yeah. I think we typically start this off by asking you, Joey, what you thought this movie would oh, be yeah. about. We do. So, so I feel like uh, Green Book being in the zeitgeist in Oscar season yeah. is something that I, that I naturally like uh, garnered more information about because it was definitely, uh, you know, it, w- it was in pop culture in the very recent past. Mm-hmm. So I, I knew that the movie was about some, uh, some white dude driving around some black dude and uh, some people were racist. Yeah. That's pretty and good. the South. Yeah. And the black dude played music. That's pretty good. And yeah. This is one of the rare instances where I didn't, like, I had a very similar idea of what the movie was about, for, like, with Joey. But I think that my idea was like, oh, it's going to be a movie, like, if nothing else, it's going to be a movie about how a white guy is realizing he can't stay in the same places as a black guy. Like a black man would be able to because he has this green book. And then like um, from, from a certain perspective, I'm like, oh, it's going to be interesting because I've never had to use a green book because I'm just a Mexican guy living in 2019. So like seeing it in the context of the time, I'm like, oh, that might be kind of interesting. Like you see what was in the green book and see how it all unfolds. So, all right, whatever. I'll, I'll check this out. That's not what this movie was about. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's not what the movie was about. It was not a time capsule. <laughs> Another fun bit of tidbit. This is the first movie we've done that none of us have seen. Yeah. Yeah. So we're kind of all coming in here with fresh eyes. But, Cora, why, why is it that you and I, like, I would say self-proclaimed movie aficionados, fans of cinema, mm. why, have, why has Green Book not been one of the movies that we have, like, what, what? what's up with this? I stayed away from, there were, I mean, first off, so many controversies around this movie the second it came out, and none of them made it seem like the storytellers were very competent at delivering the story they wanted to tell, and it just seemed to me like a very by-the-books, kind of white savory feel-good about racism because it happened in the past kind of movie. Yeah, and it's been solved. Yeah. <laughs> So I didn't. I wasn't really interested in it. Yeah, fair. And I, to me, yeah, same, same, same boat for sure. But in all actuality, what is Green Book about? So Green Book 
uh, takes place in 1962. It is about an Italian New Yorker named Tony who finds himself in need of work when the club he's a bouncer at closes for renovation for a few months. Uh, esteemed African-American pianist Dr. Donald Shirley hires him as a driver for his upcoming tour to the South. Uh, initially, the two struggle to see eye to eye. Tony's working class simplicity and abrasiveness clashing with Shirley's more refined seriousness. Um, but however, through experiences together navigating the South, they cultivate a mutual respect and understanding, even eventually maybe a friendship. And they all learn about racism and go have Christmas and credits roll. And then you feel better. Yeah. And you go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> so... Okay, this movie. If you look, I'm if I did my best to divorce everything surrounding the controversy of the movie and just looked at the movie for what it is. Mm -hmm. I think that in script form, as it stands, I think it is an okay movie. Like I think that it is a by the book, designed, min max to hell. Like this is how you write a screenplay. This is how you have a character arc. Things happen, and a character changes a little bit by the end of the movie. Roll credits. Hey, you have a good character introduction for both characters. Uh, yeah, sure. Like, I think at a surface level, I think it's it's fine. Like, it, it would be really easy to teach in a film class and have, like, a, like a, like a 101, have, have a student write a... Write on what is a character arc, how does someone change, what are themes and motifs? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's particularly interesting, but I think that it's like, okay, this, the, the, the ingredients are here. But to me, I think the, the biggest problem I have with this movie is that it commits like this. It's, it's very hard to describe without getting into like my deep-rooted uh, Protestant upbringing, but it's like this – the idea of a, a small sin that you it's planting the seed of like this it's a very sinister and evil seed of oh well this is something that was taken care of in the past and you know what like maybe maybe i might have some prejudices i hold against some people whatever the color might be but you know what by the end of it i feel like it's fine because you know what it all works out like i, I think it it comforts you into thinking that you don't actually have to do anything about prejudices you might have. And I just it, – it, it, it's like a warm blanket that slowly suffocates you. Mm -hmm. and I think it's – I think it is inherently evil in that respect. Yeah, I felt similarly and this this idea that all racism or – other isms can be solved simply through exposure and getting to know someone. And that's, that's all we need. That's all the world needs to feel better. And that, that feels really nice. And that's a comforting idea. But at the end of the day, that's not, that's not always true. There are plenty of insidious people in this world who will still be racist, even mm -hmm. if they know black people for a month, like, and it's, it's just not responsible to pretend that all you have to do is make a friend and everything will get solved. It, it feels childish in that respect. Like you failed to look like it would, it's something that you would expect like a middle schooler or high school to be like, this is a story about fr an unlikely friendship. And I was like, okay, well you. How to solve racism by Joey in the fifth grade. <laughs> like it, it's the idea that this is at a surface level, like, okay, I get what you're going for here, but. I think if you – because Spike Lee is so, I think, inherently attached to this movie in some ways that suck for him. Like, 
he confronts racism in a way that's not pretty. It's not neat, but it is the way we experience racism on a day-to-day basis. In movies like The Green Book, things always work out. But in Do the Right Thing, sometimes people just can't get along. And it's the idea of how you act when you can't get along. It's like, huh, that's where there's some truth. And that's what I'm interested in unpacking. Not this like neat little bow on top of this feel-good story. But I, I think we're Coral and I are venting a little <laughs> bit about this. Joey, what did, you, what did you think of Green Book? <sighs> top level down? <laughs> um, I feel like... I feel like it was uh, a, a movie made for my dad, <laughs> who is um, a, a racist old white man. Mm-hmm. Really tie them together, these themes, um, <laughs> to to feel better about racism. Yeah, <laughs> or like yeah. It, it 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 felt like such a such a paint by numbers example and such an oversimplification of of a massive issue in our culture that we deal with every day yeah that that it, it's it's just pitiful to 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 i i i can see that sometimes there there's like elegance and beauty in in brevity and simplifying something into its most distilled form and it feels like that's what they wanted to do here in a sense if you're giving them you know like a like a good benefit of the doubt they just wanted to distill this problem and this story to have like a like a feel-good moment but really it just it just comes off as like insultingly oversimplified yeah um so we're not overreacting in our knee-jerk reactions to the movie it seems like (laughs) and i know that like uh this was was probably the way for most of us but i was definitely primed before this movie with similar beliefs like this because of stuff i read about the movie and stuff i listened to about the movie and just the conversation surrounding it so um I mean, I, I feel like all that media I consumed is correct, hmm. but I, I definitely feel like I, I came in with a loaded gun looking for <laughs> this stuff. You know, I, I already hear that it has these problems and that I'm just identifying them being like, oh, yeah, you know, that, that NPR piece I listened to sure was right. Um, so it's, it's, it, it, it felt icky. I feel like there's a world where if you try and extract the race relation issues out of there, it could be a fun buddy movie. Okay. Okay. Do, do, do you not agree with that? I, 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 I mean, I, I just, I, it's, again, I, this is not a criticism of your take on it because there's not really too much to unpack because I think it is so surface level at a certain point in an analysis of it. You are kind of just like, sifting through a puddle to some extent but uh, i i think that it's a a, a friendship based on race it, and that's it like it's just that's the only reason why they met and that's the only reason why they talk to each other and it's you just they it doesn't really feel like a friendship yeah <sighs> And I think when you remove the kind of weighty subject matter of, you know, race relations from this movie, there's not the rest of it isn't that good. I don't there were so many just bad Tony Soprano impressions. (laughs) There's like, I don't know why there was a two second hot dog eating contest in the first five minutes that mattered 
Not at all. Like there were so many just because I one of weird the things. That I wrote is um, <laughs> dude. I, I wrote multiple notes about the movie not being funny, and then I finally just wrote, "Does the comedy come from his appetite?" <laughs> <laughs> He's like Brad Pitt in uh, Ocean's Eleven. He's just always eating. <laughs> I, I think we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. So let Let's start at the top. Do you want to start at the top? We meet Tony, the club bouncer. He's the, what's the name of the club, Joey? The Copacabana. The Copacabana. He, the Copa. He's, Copa a, he's basically a glorified bouncer here. And this is where we get a character introduction. And again, this is going back to script writing 101 where you're like, how do we make a quick, good first impression for our protagonist character? Uh, a movie called Green Book. How, how is our protagonist, <laughs> the white Italian guy in a movie called Green Book? How, how are we introducing him? And it is I, – I genuinely think – I genuinely think it is a good character introduction because it signals a couple of things. It shows, one, he's a tough dude because there's a, 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 a scene that gets caused in the club that he has to kind of take care of as one of the bouncers. And he's, he, he's, a, he's a big and he's a heavy guy and all of his punches pack a serious punch, not to be redundant. But – in addition to not only being just dumb and strong, like it's implied that he's just dumb and strong, but he does kind of showcase some street smarts in that he kind of orchestrated this like stealing of a very important person's hat so that he could potentially get future jobs, which I, you know, that's fun. Like that's, that's a street smart guy who knows how to throw a punch. Like, okay, I get who this character is. I'm on board. And he can also put away a 26 or 28 hot dogs. <laughs> what like, a guy. He has, he has an appetite. And he has a family who he loves very much. He has a wife, and he has – does he have a kid? He yeah. Kids. He has two kids. And, and he's uh, getting laid off. And, and the he, Copacabana's but, closing for renovation. What's he going to do to make money? Tony rents due. Since he caused the scene, you know, now it's being investigated. So he's going to have to lay low. And, you know, he, he eats all those hot dogs so he can make a quick 50 bucks. But when he goes home, him, him and his old pals, uh, his wife's family – who are, by extension, his family. They're just watching the game. They're having a good time like boys do on a Sunday. But then he sees someone in his kitchen. He sees two people in his kitchen, and his wife's talking to him. They're two black men in his kitchen, and immediately like, oh, this is where we're going to find out. He doesn't like black people. And sure enough, his wife, who is very kind, played by, uh, what's her name? She's the one from uh, Freaks and Geeks, right? Linda Cardellini. Linda Cardellini, also in the upcoming film, Curse of La Llorona. Another movie she probably shouldn't be in. But that being said, she she extends hospitality to the two black men who are in her home. I think they're fixing something. They're like maintenance people. And she gives them something to drink. And this small interaction of Tony going over to the empty glasses that the black men drank from, I think just ruined any potential <laughs> of like, oh, okay, you're racist. Subtly, but I could, Subtlety? Like, he was vile. He didn't say anything to them, but I can't think of a more piece of shit moment than yeah. someone throwing away a couple of glasses because two black men drank from him. Like, whoa, what a way of portraying racism in a way that's, like, not overtly mean, but it's like, dude, it's going to be hard for me to like you after this. Yeah. Even the way that that moment was shot was so jarring because the whole intro when he's working at the club, you have this very like s 
sweeping camera movements where it's clearly like beautifully choreographed to move through the club and follow him and everything feels very intentional and, and lovely and grand. And then you get to this moment and it is shot with like a really like a long zoom lens and it's really shaky and it's so voyeuristic and threatening and weird. And it just felt so instantly bad. It was. It choreographed what he was going to do before he did it, which I guess to some extent is like, I guess a choice. Yeah, it was so, it was definitely intentional, but it felt like it doubled down on how terrible he was being right away. I make him as terrible as possible so that when the white man eventually wins at the end, it's it's more of a, it's more of a rise, right? (sighs) But, but this is a moment specifically that I think is so vile in this character's life. Like, like, I think the only worst thing it could have done was participated in a lynch mob at this point. Because, like, dude, that's a, a shitty thing to do. And I'm like, okay, I hope that if nothing else by the end of this movie, his wife, who seems like a good person, is going to confront him about throwing away glasses. But it never comes up. She no. finds the glasses in the trash, but she never confronts her husband about his racism. Yeah, that is the one thing that this movie. I'm like, oh, so you're not a good wife. You're not a good person. You just let this happen. How? What? What's yeah. going on in this movie? And like, not to jump too far ahead, but even at the end, she waits for her husband to be out of earshot to thank Doctor Shirley for helping him be less of a racist piece of shit. It's such a weird, but then response. But like, then we, is she? Are we supposed to be like? She's oh, she's a, cool a good one. She's not racist. Yeah. <sighs> Because you like, yeah, sure, she's objectively less racist than her husband, but like, that's just—is that just playing into different time period stereotypes, where like the woman is is lesser now and like won't stand up to the man? My theory is that she is the type of person who this movie is made for. Yeah. (laughs) But then there's our then there's our our second character. I wouldn't really call him a protagonist. But uh, well, they don't the Oscars, right? Because he's a supporting actor. <laughs> yeah, which seems weird because well, the movie's called Green Book. What's going on? <laughs> no, no black people touch the Green Book in this movie. It is passed around between several different white people mm-hmm. exclusively. But we meet we meet Doctor <laughs> we meet Doctor Shirley for the first time shortly after this heinous interaction with with Tony and the black men in his home. And I gotta say, it's a it was a Again, I think another very good by-the-book, textbook character introduction in that, hey, what's this doctor doing above a concert hall? What's going on? So Tony goes to interview for a position that, like, oh, this is for a doctor as, like, a bodyguard thing. I'm interested. I'll be a driver for a doctor. Cool. It's above a concert hall. Something's up. What's going on here? I don't—am I in the right place? But then you go to find out, again, through an interaction with another person of color, uh, this time someone who is Indian, I believe. And, again, his uh, his racism extends beyond black. It is uh, all people of color, it appears, in this movie. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, after a very uncomfortable encounter with a butler to Dr. Shirley, he meets Shirley. And it is played, he is played by Mahershala Ali and... Dr. Shirley is a I think I, I think eccentric is a little is appropriate here. He, he's a renowned regal man of wealth and he likes a lot of the finest things in life. He is very well spoken, I would say also soft spoken 
and in every way, shape, and form, the exact opposite of uh, Tony. And again, back to the screenwriting 101, we have our foil for our protagonist, the character who's going to be the predicament he has to deal with throughout the course of the movie. Well, what did you guys I hate think of- Tony for being <laughs> like, oh, my name's on the list. Of course my name's on the list because my name's Tony. What the f- it, Again, I, I think that it is reinforcing once again the idea that he's good at being Uneducated? Street, he's good at being street smart. He's good at bullshitting people, which is like, okay, that's fine. You know? But he was on the list. He just didn't give his name. <laughs> <laughs> like, what a fuckwad. <laughs> I don't think his name was on the list. It though. was. Was it? Yeah. I thought it was a different Tony that it was, was on a, the list. It was a different Tony. Yeah, he just pretended to be that Tony. He went that, to Tony Valong. No, because— That was uh, the reveal that happens later in the movie. Well, the, it, it, Dr. Shirley directly says that, that he, you know, he heard all the references and specifically wanted him, so why would he not be on the list? Mm. Yeah. True. Maybe that's just a bad writing <laughs> bit. But I, I, I could have swore that the person who also shared the name Tony was also someone worthy of respect to some extent. But uh, what, what, what was your guys' thought? What were your thoughts on the first encounter between the white man and the black man in the movie? <laughs> Even watching the rest of the movie and then going back and thinking about that scene, his his like sitting on a throne that was a level over him seemed too aggressive like a lot of it didn't fit with the character i got to know throughout the movie i felt like i felt the exact same way i okay i completely agree and i think that was done on purpose so that you can still side with tony Mm. in their interaction because you want tony to succeed because the dr shirley he's got a family to feed he needs a job the only thing stronger than racism is money I would argue that even though Dr. Shirley does undergo some change in the movie, I'd argue that it's not authentic, nor is it genuine. And I think that for the most part, he's, he's the same person throughout the movie um, without any weird script doctoring happening where it's like, oh, we need to make this guy better. I, I genuinely think they make him look like a villain in the beginning. Not, not a villain, but someone who you're supposed to root for Tony to kind of go against and succeed and beat to some extent, because every scene is driven by a conflict to some extent. It, it, it could be just two people talking about uh, getting a job in this instance, and we want Tony to succeed. So to do that, we have to make the character who really is deserving of all the sympathy because he is a black man in a period where he's got everything going against him. It just seems like, okay, we got we to gotta level the, the playing field here a little bit for our protagonist. So it feels disingenuous from that setup. <laughs> but, but Tony, again, through, through his ingenuity and his hard work ethic, you know, he, he pawns some things. He's, it's tight for money. But you know what? He loves his family and he's going to make it work. And then luckily... He wakes up to a phone call from Dr. Shirley, who's willing him willing to pay the rate that Tony had suggested before ultimately being dismissed. So he gets the job and he meets the band. It is a Russian man and I forget the other man who he was. Uh, George and Oleg are oh. the two bandmates or trio. Yeah, they're, they're the trio and the journey begins from there. And then 
All the craziness happens. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, cool cars. Cool cars? Again, I do, <laughs> I, I do think period pieces like this are susceptible to being praised as like, oh, look at how – remember how great it was in the 60s? Like, look how cool everything was. Oh, man, look at the club. Isn't it so cool? Don't you just wish we could go back to this time? No, I, I <laughs> genuinely felt zero of that. And Do you think it was supposed to feel that way at all? Yeah, I think that's how they portray the, uh, the world of the movie for sure. Yeah. Rolling Hills of America. Yeah, it's looked at with a loving lens. And, you know, there's there's some beauty there. I'm not going to deny that for sure. Uh, I, I just think that there is implicitly, like, there there are ties to the problems of this movie and the world that it was conceived in. And I'm not saying you can't like the world of the, the 1960s because of its its style, its aesthetic, its its music, and it's just overall atmosphere but you have to be able to recognize that it is it like it is inextricably in, inextricably linked to some very problematic jim things. crow laws <laughs> and that, again stuff like that is stuff we encounter later in the movie but our first interaction is watching tony and dr shirley interact in the car tony is driving the black man wow what a what a turn of events. That's not how it usually happens. Isn't that wild? It's like driving Miss Daisy, but backwards. <laughs> what a what a funny situation we found ourselves in. Yeah. But but that's really I do think that's where if the movie has any magic, this is where the screenwriters want that magic to shine is the interaction between the foils. And again, because Dr. Shirley is so well spoken, it does paint uh tony in a pathetic light like i wouldn't call tony dumb i don't think he's dumb i think he's oblivious and i think he's ignorant but i wouldn't call him dumb i just think he's not a well-learned i I often use the word i'm sorry cool i i see what you're saying but i feel like maybe maybe part of it is not all of the dialogue was perfectly written he says some absolute stupid shit that is not doesn't make any sense unless he's an absolute buffoon he does say some stuff that makes zero sense There's, he uses words and blah, blah, so, blah. i forget specifically the interaction but i think shirley says musical and tony's response is huh you mean like songs like it is that level of just like absolute idiocy that i thought was <laughs> It didn't make any sense that he would be that dumb. Mm-hmm. I often use the word dumb when really what I want to say is um, uneducated. But I feel like Tony is both dumb and <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. I will give that to you. He says some pretty dumb things in this movie. <laughs> yeah, and it's just like, hey, I'm Tony. Uh, I, I got street smarts and I eat a lot. That's my character. Also, I'm racist. And his street smarts are always, I'm going to punch you. <laughs> like, that is that is almost every interaction that he navigates to safety is he just, like, smacks someone or punches them or threatens to. Yeah. You know, Tony Point would say to that. He'd say, yeah, you do what you're good at. <laughs> but I, I think... He's just dumb. He doesn't know which deer to start a letter with. That's... That's okay. It's not okay. There's <laughs> is no okay. world in which that's okay. That is okay. But I think that that moment that you're talking about specifically was the only moment I got a laugh when was when uh, the Dr. Shirley basically says something 
some, they're having some conversation and Tony misinterprets the words and then says something that he thinks the words meant. And Dr. Shirley's like, yeah, that's exactly what I meant. And it's like, no, that's not what he meant. That's the joke. Yeah, because you're still taking the piss out of Tony. That's the only part that I, I genuinely laughed out loud at. But I, after that, that I, was it. I wrote down KFC in Kentucky sounds like a bad writer's room. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, like, oh think- man, what are they going to do in the South? I don't know if I can eat KFC. What if they eat it in Kentucky? And I think that sparks one of the most interesting parts of the movie. Yeah, what? for the wrong reasons. Wouldn't it be funny if we had the white guy show the black guy how to eat fried chicken? What? <laughs> I, think that, I think there's two sides to this coin. I, I do think that having Dr. Shirley, like, not be... Like, he, he intentionally is not a stereotype of himself because he feels like that makes him lesser. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, to some... Yes. But, I, again, I think all this does is just reinforce the notion that we can't like our protagonist in this movie at all. You know, people love fried chicken. <laughs> And he he, fried chicken there. He's like, see, I told you they love fried chicken. And you know what? I think that if we had this interaction and it didn't involve race, I think that if if Monk was in the (laughs) backseat of this car, I think I'd be more on board. And to some extent, Dr. Shirley is a Monk type character in that he is so clean. He is so neat. He wouldn't dream of eating food with his hands. Like it's like that level of like, oh, that's just not my thing. Like. I like to use utensils. Fine. But I think that, again, when you tie it so heavily to race, it excuses any magic that might have been there and just throws it out the window the way Tony does a chicken bone or, or the cup. But then Dr. Shirley makes him go drive back and pick it up because what a fun button to a scene that was terrible. Yeah. And, <laughs> and that whole chicken scene is like one note in this recurring thread where – this racist white guy teaches Shirley about African-American culture, the whole, like, teaching him about the music and mm. all this stuff that I don't I don't want to, like, dig too much into the fiction of the movie versus the reality, but everyone in Shirley's family has, like, aggressively said that this wasn't true, that he wasn't isolated or rejected or confused by <laughs> African-American culture in any way. And he was very close with his whole family. And they specifically said he'd absolutely had fried chicken before. Are you telling me the filmmakers lied? I thought you were going to go with, he absolutely listened to Little Richie before. <laughs> because isn't it just an asinine thought that someone who's a PhD musician would have never yes. listened to Little Or Aretha Richie. Franklin. Or Aretha Franklin. And I think that whole, that, that, discrepancy between the actuality and and the film is just the only reason that they would do that is to make this white character have a a beneficial purpose in their friendship because that is he didn't offer anything to their friendship if he didn't have this in his back pocket but they they needed something to make this friendship feel more balanced and feel like tony was offering something to shirley in a in a way that balanced the way Shirley was teaching Tony so much. And, and that's, that's a thread that comes up throughout the movie. It, you know, you, you mentioned it with the music and, and it taps into the idea that Dr. Shirley, his, his dilemma is that he feels as though he doesn't belong. And I think this is the only subplot in the movie. Again, in the context of the, the fiction of the movie, uh, again, independent from reality, I think the idea of, 
someone who doesn't belong anywhere because they are one not black enough or not white enough it, i think it's a a good thread but it is ultimately abandoned in probably three minutes of on-screen footage like it's an interesting thread that just quickly gets abandoned and i I just and it also gets counterpointed and like shut down by Tony. Like when they're complaining when you know when Doc is went out in the rain, like Tony immediately like shuts him down. It's 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 a it's a weird scenario for me because I think out of all the the things this movie has to say, that's the one that resonates with me just because that's the one that's been kind of lobbed at me on occasion. Like, oh, you're not Mexican, you're not Mexican enough. Fucking what, guilty, dude. What, what's going on there? Dude, like you're so whitewashed. And and that's the the thing that kind of like is evocative to me. Like, okay, I can understand the dilemma you're going through and i could see why that's difficult because you you feel as though you're torn between two worlds but i just i I think in the hands of a more talented writer that could have been extrapolated into something that was just its own movie (laughs) yeah (laughs) or a a theme you would want to explore from the perspective of that character not do you mean the the (laughs) one that the movie called the green book should probably be about yes (laughs) yeah man this movie dude I feel weird about it, though. I feel like I'm being overly critical in something that I think that is, again, divorced from fact and and the truth of the situation surrounding this quote-unquote true story. I do feel like it is a well-made movie to some extent, but I feel like there's so many problems with it that, like, break the text. Like, there are some metatextual problems that severely hinder what should be like a not maybe not a good script but a script that is like oh okay this is functional sure and this is weird to me because i'm usually like hey if it's structurally a good thing that's fine but this is just one occasion where i can't let it slide i don't know why well i do know why but it's just why is this the movie that I feel this way about. Because it's a movie that rests on the fact that, like, oh, we're telling an important story. We're, we have a message to tell you, mm. and we have something to teach you about reality, and we base this on a real story. And it's, it's going to help with our current ra- racist issues in our society, and, like, we're bringing this to you. And the, the act of making this movie just stomped all over a black man's legacy and that's a really fucked up thing if you're trying to make a movie about representation and moving forward in racism to just like throw someone under the bus essentially to do that i mean they they didn't reach out to shirley's family they it's it's awful the more you start reading about the production of this movie and the reality of these two people versus what was portrayed on screen it's it's awful, and if you are selling your movie on the premise that it's it's genuine and it based is based on a true friendship, yeah, <laughs> and delivering some meaningful message about race, those those things are in conflict with each other, and that's important. Mm. I read a, a very good piece, not to not to diverge too much, but I read a very good piece. I think it was from uh, Time, I want to say, but they were just talking about how the racism of green book and driving miss daisy are like driven by a capitalist friendship 
Mm. And it was just, it was a fascinating unpacking how money drove the fact that these two people, these, the unlikely couple were driven to friendship and how money played a hand in every interaction that, that worked in this movie. And it's, it, it was a pretty fascinating read. I'll definitely include it when we, uh, when we post the podcast. I guess I could be racist now, but if I am, then I can't feed my family or pay rent. So <laughs> I guess I'll try and not be racist so my kids can eat. And, and I, I, part of me is like, as someone who is one, I am not a person who is equipped to tell a story about a green book, about what it's like being a black man in the racist South. Um, but I, I wonder, like, at this point, I'm kind of over the movie. <laughs> so, so the question I have is, like, as someone who is not a, a black man, is there any validity to a storyteller who might have, again, a different perspective than most, but not a black man? Is there any validity in someone telling a story about the Deep South in, in a racist time? I'm just curious at this point. Like, what can be engaged with in this era? Because I know a couple of things that I want to call to directly. Like, there's a, a book called Lovecraft County. What it is essentially the green book, but not whitewashed or sanitized. It is a, a black man writing about venturing through the racist South during the time of Jim Crow laws. But it's also adhering to something that came before in the form of Lovecraft, who is a famously racist person and it is combating all of the racism that hp lovecraft put forth into the world but doing it through the context of a black man and it is one of my favorite books that came out i think 2017 but like is there room for stuff like that in an era where people just want to watch the green book <laughs> do people want to watch the green book what were its box office sales I, I don't I don't know I, like, I genuinely don't but I, but this is the movie this is a movie that my parents saw why because they they just like hey well it won an award I'm gonna go check it out and that I mean, that's why we watched it and that's the and that I think ties back to that sinister note that I was trying to touch on earlier. like it is designed to appeal to the people who might not look into it as deeply as Coral does, as, as deeply as Coral does. Because I guarantee you, if my parents knew that they were just sold a lie, they would not be very happy mm -hmm. about how the movie unfolded. Because they would just Talk feel, to your parents about it? No, I didn't know that about the movie. I, I genuinely didn't know. I purposefully didn't look it up. Because I, I didn't want to let that color my perception of how the story was told. I would love... Uh, I mean, I, I, I say I would love to have my parents' uh, thoughts after seeing the movie or, like, even them viewing it in the first place. Mm -hmm. But I know that I feel like I would just be disappointed by it. Yeah. And also, real quick, worth noting, it did well in the <laughs> box office. It passed $300 million. Oh. Is that so after it, it won an Oscar, though? Like, I, it's like, I been, it been re-released, but it, it was fine. Okay. <laughs> it had a $23 million budget, and it blew past that. Tangentially related question. Um... I think this is the first time that I've like sat down and thought about what uh, Oscar bait is. For lack of <laughs> oh <word>. yeah, <laughs> this because, is that. You know, as, as someone who um, you know only loosely keeps up with the Academy and you know over the last couple of years of their their you know problems with inclusion and uh, I, I I don't like normally just watch what wins Best Picture. <laughs> yeah, 
but I hear people talk about, oh, this movie's Oscar bait. And then I watch this and I feel like I have a better uh, identifier of what that term means. Yeah, it's a great example. <laughs> and I think historically, if you look back at most Best Picture winners, they are movies that you probably would have to look up what they're about because I don't think that they would stand the test of time. There are movies that I think are quintessential Oscar bait but aren't deserving of being looked upon in the future in any way that just seems to me like, why did this win? What's going on? Mm. And I think that's most Best Picture winners. (laughs) Granted, there's some exceptions, but I think for the most part, 8 out of 10, they're like, what? Why did this win? Yeah, I think a lot of Oscar winners walk this balance that is very time sensitive of making viewers feel like they're engaging in something really meaningful without demanding a lot of work Mm -hmm. and where those two things kind of meet each other depends so much on especially with a movie like this that's about racism is so dependent on where the culture is specifically at the moment that you see it i mean you can extrapolate that into like just american culture almost too yeah (laughs) you know i I think be meaningful don't do work one of the things that pains me about this movie is that I do think that the best thing it does is showcasing Tony in such an admirable light. Again, they try and redeem him several times, like, oh, he's cool or whatever. But I do think that there is something about Tony that should rub you the wrong way. And I think that throwing away the glasses is like, that's it. That's the moment where you're like, oh, no, you were just terrible. But there's shades of that I see in my day-to-day life that I think like, oh, man, if only you understand – if only you watch this movie to criticize it the way we have because then you could see that there are shades of people like Tony in everyone's life mm-hmm. who – you know, he never he never drops an N-bomb or anything like that. His family does. He, he, yeah, but he doesn't. He he all he does is he's he's a quiet racist. But it even and, that and I think he's the that's the worst kind. <laughs> he doesn't use that word, but it it feels like it just wasn't captured on film. Like it <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. You yeah. just missed it, right. And, yeah. And I and I don't agree and I don't disagree. But I but I think that the the quietness of his racism is the thing that should be the most poignant about the movie. Like, this should be a textbook example of, hey, this is also just as bad as being vocally racist, but I, it's just ultimately loss. I mean, mm-hmm. ultimately, like, I mean, they, they do try and save Tony and, you know, show his arc as growing up a person. Because I guess if you continue on the movie, for the people who were following we were saying, you know, they, they do, Tony ultimately does, you know, not get fully paid because he doesn't do the last show and they leave and they don't make it home on time. So like he's like, oh, it's 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 okay. Like I I sacrifice something for myself, you know, to do what's right. Um, Dude, but Tony's woke. He's cool about whatever relationship. Doctor he's not Shirley, the first. The first really <laughs> wants to have. <laughs> what a weird scene. He's like, hey man, I've been in a club. Sometimes things. <laughs> things what is going on? He was, in this yeah, movie? It, 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 it's. I don't believe that someone like Tony's character would um, be that accepting of that. I totally agree. I'm like, what yeah. is this character you're presenting to me now? I don't believe how woke Tony is all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a scene where Dr. Shirley is at the YMCA and is in the shower with another man, and Tony gets called because he gets chained up for being <laughs> in the shower with another man. But um, A white man. 
a white man. Yeah, that's a that's a double sin. Yeah. Um, what a weird scene, though, for Tony to be. I like, had to look up hey, if like Doctor Shirley was like a noted homosexual or something because it felt like at the time just watching the movie, I'm like, oh, of course he's also gay, <laughs> but um, yeah, he he did come out in his life, which I feel like was a point not needed for the movie, but I guess part of their adventure and like a fun thing that they well, yeah. to, to include. Well, it's also part of the way to be like, hey, Tony's not so bad, right? <sighs> what is this movie? I just, and all these scenes where Tony shows up to save the day, like, I mean, the whole movie made me feel like the, Tony is not the interesting person in this no! friendship. Tony is not the person I want to watch a two hour movie about. Like, I'm way more interested in Shirley's whole life, but we only see Shirley's life from the perspective of this idiot who's with him for a few months. My favorite scene is when Tony's writing a letter to his wife, and then he picks up just a whole pizza. Folds <laughs> it in half. You can't tell me you've never done that before. No, I've never done that. I have this only because we got uncut pizzas for the show. Dude, what a what a scene, though. Like the just, comedy comes from he's hungry all the time. That's it. He's not hungry though. He's just he's just slothful. You really see the shallow Hal director jump out at that, that moment. Is, is that shallow? Yeah. No way. Yeah, shallow Hal. Something about Mary. I think maybe movie, no! movie forty three. Even maybe. Oh man. So you're telling me the director of Shallow <laughs> Hal got an Oscar? Yeah, man. Anything's possible. The structure of Shallow House seems pretty similar. <laughs> Man, I, uh, this feels like a weird one-off episode of Joey Hates Movies where we're, we're like not unpacking a movie more so. <laughs> we're like academically shitting on it. Like this feels weird, but it's also very satisfying because that movie's really long. Like it is well, way longer than it needs to be. Yeah. yeah, it's it's such an experience, and I I wonder if uh, you know I'm, I'm sitting here when we're doing this this talk that is that is cathartic and I'm genuinely enjoying. But I wonder <laughs> I wonder if people uh, uh, tuned out because they're like, look at these fucking cucks. What is what I don't about the social justice war? <laughs> like I I think that if you divorce any identity politics from this movie, you you gotta admit there's some serious issues with. Like, just the inherent theme of the movie and just the premise. Like, they, they're so linked together that how can you not, you know? Yeah. There's a hand, there, and there's a bunch of people who tore this down, you know, exponentially more than we did. Yeah. Uh, with, you know, with way better personal relations and stories. Because none of us are, you know, the people who are really being victimized here. Yeah. None of us are black people <laughs> it's simple as that but that being said i think we can still as people who are not black offer insights into why we are people with introspection which I, hey i'm tony a person of color i don't know about y'all tony is not <laughs> but i get an extra an extra playing card <laughs> do you get yeah you do uh that that's fair you do <laughs> do you think th this makes me like think about how many um Tony-like people there are in the world, and not from a racism standpoint, but from a complete utter lack of introspection standpoint. <laughs> like, is that just a common person who I never interact with because I'm in such a secluded circle in my community, in my workplace, in my friend group, that I don't deal with people who have zero introspection? I think Tony's an extreme version of 
a pretty common person. Yeah, for sure. That's scary though. Like, like if Tony's a if Tony's a nine, and there's a lot of people who are like sevens and sixes. Yeah, yeah. That's like still kind of startling and concerning, and probably why we deal with a lot of the issues we deal with today. Mm. Yeah, the, the, again, just to dunk on Tony a little bit more. There's a <laughs> there's a scene where he calls a, an Asian man a, a, a slur. And what immediate, did he say? Did he say oriental? No. He, he said the, the C word. <laughs> like, a, like something in armor. <laughs> but regardless, he's, he, he uses a slur, a, der, a derogatory term. And then he's uh, talking to an, another Asian barman. And it's... Oh. Again, I think it's... Got it. It's used... I think it's another good example of there are tons of people like this in the world where they're very good at hiding their racism, where he just finished calling someone a bad name, and then his next interaction with someone of that same race is like, it colors your perception of that interaction in a way that's very gross, where mm. you're like, you are less than me, I am more than you, therefore, I don't need to say anything. And that's that. That's the only thing I took from like, man, Tony's just not winning anything in this movie in my eyes. Like, it, it's how flagrant you can use one word, and the next second, it's just like, oh no, this is just I'm going to operate. But I just know I'm better than you. Preach. Yeah. Do you think at the end of the movie, when uh, ultimately Doctor Shirley goes and joins Tony's family for Christmas beer for Christmas Eve because he's lonely and by himself, and <laughs> that company? Um, do you really think Tony's family would be that accepting? <laughs> I don't think they were. No. I was I was I was expecting something bad to happen. I think something bad did happen, but then they were just like, "Oh, well fuck, he's right here standing in front of us. We can't say anything to his face." All right. I think they they had their terrible moment in their hesitation. You know, cuz there is a moment of hesitation, and it's a very pregnant pause. And I think the fact that that pause happens lets you know, "Hey, they're all Tonys. <laughs> Am I crazy in that in that read of it where it's just like, oh, I get what you were trying to do. You were trying to make it look like, oh, are they going to be racist? But I think that in posing that question, all you did was just reinforce the fact that they're racist. Yeah, I think I think that scene was set up to be like Tony's decision to be welcoming is like that small step you take to encourage widespread change. Like because Tony welcomed him and introduced him in front of his racist family, that is the the little nudge his whole racist family needs to become better people. And it's that that whole movie encapsulated is like little friendly nudges and meeting people will help. There it is. That's the moment of that's the movie could have been just that. I'm like, all right, I got it. They they never spent Christmas together. Shirley's whole family says Shirley never called him a friend. He was an employee that he fired uh, after a, a year and a half. They did not have this relationship. He got fired? Yes, he was fired <laughs> because he wasn't respectful. <laughs> he refused to carry his bags. He refused to open the door. He refused to wear a chauffeur's uniform. So he was fired. How do they say that this movie is based on a true French? Because it was written by Tony's son, Tony's real oh. life son. Ugh. They they didn't realize Shirley had relatives alive. Ugh. So they didn't talk to them. Are you telling me history is only <laughs> favoring? The... Okay. <laughs> it's That's... wild. 
But the end of the movie makes you believe that they were uh, friends until they died. Yeah. Well, they, they died months apart, so you know. There was pictures. <laughs> there are pictures of them being old. <laughs> Ah! That, that, those, those, post, those post-final scene true photos feel extra misleading now. <laughs> they are! They are misleading! They are selling a lie! Uh. I didn't know he was fired. That's so <laughs> funny. I want to see that scene. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's an, a much more interesting movie in this relationship than Green Book. I want to know. Why Mahershala Ali agreed to be in this movie? Yeah, yeah. He won an Oscar. Maybe. I don't know, man. Yeah, man. I don't know. This movie's weird. <laughs> do you think? Do you think, like, in in a couple of years, you can be like, "Hey, do you regret that role?" <laughs> That's the question I want does, does any someone... journalist to ask. <laughs> How do you feel about being in the Green Book? Like, man, there's just oh. Remember when Viggo Mortensen was doing a Q&A for this movie and he was trying to talk about how progressive things have, have changed since this time? No! He accidentally said the N-word. This is real, Nick. Yeah. He, he was saying, we don't say this anymore. And he just said it as an example of how the, the world is better. Oh. Viggo! <laughs> Was it, uh... I wanted to give Vigo the benefit of the doubt because I'm like, Mahershala Ali agreed to be in this movie. I like Mahershala Ali. Surely Vigo Mortensen's a little more woke than, than just this movie. Mahershala Ali had to, had to speak very carefully about a lot of the people involved in this movie <laughs> by like saying that what they, they have done was explicitly wrong, but that he believes in forgiveness and, and people learning from their mistakes. He had to do that message so many times Why over. does he have to do that? <laughs> the writer, Tony's son, is a Trump supporter? Yeah, he tweeted at Trump uh, a reply and was like, you were right, I saw the Muslims cheering on 9-11. That- Mahershala Ali's... No, oh! The writer. A bunch of Twitter makes sense to me now. Because <laughs> anytime I saw a green book in my feed, I'm like, whoop! <laughs> yeah. So this makes that was him. Yeah. I saw that tweet no, a lot. Writer. Ah, oh. is he the screenwriter too? Yeah, it was written by uh, Nick Vallelonga, Tony's son, as well as the director and another writer. Is Nick Vallelonga the one who gave the speech about Carrie Fisher at the end of the Oscars? I'm pretty sure he was, right? Oh, I don't know. Oh man. Oh man. That makes us very juicy. <laughs> so. I don't think I like the movie. <laughs> I didn't like the movie, but I like how juicy all of this was. <laughs> yeah, There's plenty I, to talk about. There is. It's, it just it just hurts. I just feel like I, I a little disingenuous because in Joey hates movie. I like I feel like we I, we pride ourselves on being a little more academic. But this is just I us. think we're pretty academic. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to talk about something from a production standpoint, real quick? How the fuck did they get to film playing piano like that? Did he actually play piano? <laughs> My understanding that I looked this up is that he did a lot of piano training, mm. but the, uh, there was a body double when they were like doing the actual piano scenes. Mm, mm. But Mahershala Ali did a lot of practice with the actual composer who played on set and for the movie, uh, who's like a 26-year-old dude. It's really cool. Oh, wow. He's like super young and like he is like a virtuoso. That's um, really cool. And he, he's also a black man. Oh, cool. Uh, so that's why he can be a body double, compose the soundtrack of the movie, and he like wrote a lot of the a lot of the uh, the music like by ear. 
Like there wasn't oh, music for it. So he just like rewrote it. He rewrote the score uh, oh. while teaching Mahershala Ali. That's pretty cool. So, so while Mahershala Ali was not playing in those scenes because that would be insane for anyone <laughs> to do who isn't a piano god. Um, you know, the parts where you don't see his hands, he is, you know, fake playing. And, and you know, all the mannerisms, he did like a crazy job nailing, which, which is really cool to see. But I, I was just so interested in, in, in the production of how they got it to look like Mahershala was playing the piano. Yeah. Mm. I thought it was really cool. Yeah, they, I, I tried to watch specifically for that and I couldn't spot it. So well done. But aside from that, what else? Is there anything else that's like? Is there anything good? <laughs> I thought it looked white, nice. I liked the color palette. I thought some of it was shot well. I thought like the I, colors would look good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Colors look good. <laughs> but like, there's nothing particularly cinematic about the movie to me. Like, no. I think the only thing that stood out to me was the like. The kind of tracking shot when they're on the highway, I was like, oh, that looks kind of cool. But there's nothing about this movie that told me this need to be this story needed to be told through the language of cinema. And, yeah. and I think that that's one thing that Oscar bait movies fail to do nine times out of ten. There's no visual storytelling here. Hmm. There were a handful of props that weren't period accurate that I noticed. Like what was it? Was there anything juicy? All the kids are wearing brand new Levi's <laughs> with like modern 2018 tags. Ah, oh, dang. <laughs> yeah. That's a, I feel like that's a big oversight. Oh, cool. Say one thing nice about the green book. I, I just said I thought the colors were nice. Oh, okay. I thought I, I like Linda Cardellini and things. She's great. Joey, say a nice thing about the green book. Of course the white man gets rewarded for learning to be okay. <laughs> Fuck, damn it, I messed up. Um, 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 <laughs> Marshall, he was a decent actor. Yeah, Marshall, he's a decent actor. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, good haircuts. <laughs> I like his suits in the movie. In good suits. He has good, good, good taste. Oh, uh, a little extravagant for my, my taste, but I like it. That's fine. Your new thing is wearing collared shirts that don't have a real collar what are you talking about that's different i, I don't I, i'm not posed on a throne <laughs> <laughs> but that was green book <laughs> you know to, to keep up with with the theme of me uh, of me ranking movies as we all you know you oh yeah honestly you... don't like the movie dude i'm very curious where you're gonna put green book what do you mean <laughs> <laughs> This, this this might put me in some hot water. Oh, um, no! I liked it more than Jurassic Park. No. <laughs> <laughs> that hurts. <laughs> Why? What? Why? I didn't like anything about you Jurassic really Park. You really didn't like Jurassic Park? <laughs> oh, Jesus. So I feel like... You know, I, I feel like we've talked about this before, maybe on the podcast, maybe just an impersonal taste, but there's like... I, I think scores are like a bell curve where like zero in the middle is like complete and utter like hatred. But you can go have like a negative score and have it be ironic. <laughs> is that the- so like a, a 10 is a perfect movie. A negative 10 is a perfectly ironic movie that's bad but like still good like The Room or something. Mm-hmm. And, and a zero is just a movie of a, a piece of media of no value. Are you, are you calling Jurassic Park a zero? I'm thinking Jurassic Park. <laughs> Jurassic Park's like a one. No. But the, but the Green Book is like a negative two. What? <laughs> Both of those scores are wild. I don't, understand. 
I don't understand this rating system. It's I'll, I'll, broken. I'll, I'll, I'll make a diagram. I get, no, I get it, but I don't get it. I assure you. But oh. Coral, mm-hmm. tell me we got a better movie on Oh, we do. Okay. What, what do we I'm got? I'm excited what, what you're going to be watching next, Coral, because I dreaded this one for a long time. I think that it took us longer to make this episode because none of us wanted to watch the movie. Yeah, yeah. certainly. <laughs> um, coming up, I chose Fargo by the Coen brothers. I've, I've heard you express interest in the Coen brothers before. You like the Fargo TV series. You so love. I think this is a pretty safe bet. I think the Fargo TV series is one of my favorite TV series, period. I'd probably put it in my top five. And I've never seen the movie Fargo. Great. So this is, if I had to make a exceedingly short list of movies that I, in theory, would have wanted to watch but never have, uh, I think Fargo would be a front runner on that list. Mm. So this is going to be a good excuse for me to watch that. This is going to be something that I think I'm actually uh, happy to watch for the first time. Yeah. I think about everything we've watched, like I've like groaned a little bit, but I think this is the first time where I feel like uh, doing my homework and taking medicine isn't going to be bad. So that's <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of stoked about that. Uh, one thing um, I wanted to try, Joey, is before we actually have you watched the movie, what do you think the movie Fargo is about? What? <laughs> what do you think Fargo the movie is Nick, about? This is much less funny. I do it on the podcast where I where I can like where I can like lie and like, <laughs> like you're ruining the element of production. I, I think this is more interesting. What do you're you think? ruining the element of production? Fargo's a movie with a bunch of fucking snow, and the snow gets red because people go in wood chippers and shit. And there's like a bag that's buried by the side of the road, and also like I don't know, um, there's a wood chipper, right? Okay, well that's what you think the movie's about. Interesting. There's no fucking aliens, right? <laughs> I mean, we'll see. I guess we'll find out season next two, time. Season three is the worst season of Fargo. But that was Joey Hates Movies. Yeah, we should plug our shit real quick before we like round out proper, I think. Um, well, uh, you plug first because I don't know what you're talking about. What? Play your, what do you we do a, we do a, I mean, what do you mean plugers? We do we do a podcast. Oh, yeah. We do we do a show. Oh, that's this right. This is made possible because of the lovely Cyber Garbage team on Patreon, patreoncom cybergarbage which not only funds our our Twitch adventure and and all of our internet shenanigans, but also allows us to do this podcast. Um, after after you stopped, uh, you know, doing the show proper, Coral, um, a lot of people were like, "Oh man, you're just you're just paywall and Coral." <laughs> to like this once, is it, guys. And, this you know, is where you get your dose of coral. Yeah. And I wanted to make a joke about that, but I was just like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's 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 it. Um, but but, but no, Patreon.com/slash/cybergarbage is is what makes all of this possible. And our Twitch so Twitch.tv/slash/cybergarbage. I know that nearly a hundred percent of people who are listening to this watch that, but I genuinely believe that at some point in 2019 someone will listen to this podcast who did not come from the current community or cyber garbage on twitch and they're going to discover cyber garbage via joey hates movies yeah um i did just update today it it was long overdue but i fixed a lot of our problems with uh with you know uh editing episodes nick nick you know, did edit the episodes, not me, but like uh, we we fixed our podcast upload, so you can you can get uh, Joey hates movies and our other podcast, Garbage Game Club, uh, 
anywhere you get podcasts now, which is really cool. And uh, I, we said this last time, but I, but I want to reiterate: uh, leave leave a five star review on iTunes and leave a comment with what your uh, what your least favorite movie is. And the next time on the podcast, we'll read one of them. Ooh, how juicy! And uh, I think after Fargo, we're probably going to do. We doing the, the, the a Patreon fan voted movie because yeah. what we do we have like a rotation here. We're, we're people who function best on a schedule, <laughs> <laughs> a schedule like structure ish. So you know, normally Coral doesn't picks a movie, Nick picks a movie, Patreon picks a movie, and uh, really that means that this movie that we should have been doing right now would have been picked by Patreon, but it was picked. Th- by the Academy. It was picked yeah. by the Academy. And whether you like it or not, it won. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. You should become a voting member and change that. But what you can't immediately do is affect the, the podcast after Fargo. Mm-hmm. So Coral picked Fargo because we didn't get to have a fan vote up before this went live. But now we're announcing that later this week we are going to put a poll on Patreon, patreon.com slash cybergarbage, uh, which will be uh, – we'll, we'll give you some options for the movie after Fargo, which y'all will be picking and then we'll get back to, uh, you know, Nick will pick the movie after that. And then, you know, we'll, we'll fix the schedule. And then eventually the Oscars will come back around and it'll fuck everything up again. <laughs> We've got a lot of time for that. So we're going we're gonna to get back to it. It's a lot of movies between now and then. Oh, man. <laughs> I mean, if we, do, if we do like one a month conservatively, that's like 12 a year. I bet we'll probably get like 14 or 15. That's like a 200% increase in your movie. It is movie so <laughs> much. Um, but thanks, everybody. For hanging out, I know. I know Coral hasn't, you know, been in the house in like a month. So yeah, it's a. Uh, it still smells. Yeah, I forgot about the smell. <laughs> <laughs> but now I get to take it with me. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Joey Hates Movies. Until next time. Killing me. You're killing me, Larry. I keep allergy pills on the counter. Do you? Yeah. The one with the blue cap? You can you can have them. No, that feels wrong. <laughs> Why? Because they're not mine. I just said you can have them. <laughs> you didn't say that. You said they were on the counter. You can have them. They're from Costco. They have a lot. Okay. Good to know. Do you take know. allergy pills, Coral? Uh, not in California. Allergies in Georgia, much, much worse. Really? Is that because you're like allergic to pollen? Yeah. The pollen count in spring in Georgia is absolutely insane. Does that mean, does, does Georgia do the thing where, um, like there's so much pollen that it rains for the first time, like the ground gets yellow? Yeah. Your car's yellow, everything. Yeah. That's real gross. That's Mm -hmm. disgusting. Does it bother you? Like look visually? Not really. It just feels so terrible. So when I was in Florida, I had the best allergies of my life, best being (laughs) least impactful. And I think because it was like so humid that a lot of stuff was just pulled out of the air Mm. or like drugged down. Did you do like, were you better in Florida? Yeah, but I also lived in an area of Florida where there just wasn't a lot of nature. Mm. So allergies, the worst allergies I had were actually in London where they didn't seem that bad, but the way they affected me, like... I just couldn't breathe. Like, I felt like my lungs were collapsing, and that's never happened before. Anytime someone describes Florida to me, it sounds more and more like a like a dystopic wasteland, like Mad Max, or like there's no nature. It's just, it's just concrete jungle, man. The, you ever been? 
No, I've never been to Florida. The nature that is in Florida is pretty special, though. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. It's like one of the most um, biodiverse ecosystems on the planet. But they got crazy things in the water, like like weird snakes and alligators and crocodiles. Yeah, you can't touch any ponds, and most people will kill you. But, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And then there's the hurricanes. (laughs) I feel like the most wild people are either from Ohio or Florida. Like, those are the most colorful people you'll ever meet in your life. <laughs> I think they're two different types of colorful. Like, when I think Ohio, I mean, I'm obviously colored to think, like, Jason. It's like someone who... Wasn't Charles Manson also from Ohio? Yeah, yeah. Like, like, people who, like, have seen some shit. And have done some shit. But, but Florida just makes me think of, like... I think of Willem Dafoe from the Florida project. Aww. I think Florida people might be able to function better in a general society, but are either, like, slightly crazy or dumber people drove bad in florida <laughs> it just seems like a an angrier la yeah <laughs> all, you know I, th- I think part of the thing is is that like the age bracket just skews older there too yeah that makes sense that's where everyone goes to retire definitely right? a little, i'm definitely a little ageist i'm coming out of this <laughs> podcast everybody is as ageist is that is that okay what wait you're ageist yeah i'm ageist is that is that a problem am i now hashtag problematic are you judging people because of their age or are you just saying that all the people are in Florida? 